Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezekiel 7 and 8, and the last time the message was titled The Razor, the Hair, and the Remnant, and really powerful illustration. We're talking about the 6th century B.C. Babylonian history as it relates to the children of Israel. Um, God is predicting the 586 B.C. final, third and final siege of the Babylonians into Jerusalem. Right? You pick up your history books, you'll find the same exact stuff in there. It supports the scripture. The Battle of Karshemish, Nebuchadnezzar up north in the Syria area. He keeps moving progressively south because Babylon really takes over a, gar- a large swath of the world. So God is, is warning his people with their behavior. Uh, they're not paying attention. They're not looking at the situation with spiritual eyes. Uh, so it's a great portion of scripture. Uh, today the message is titled, History of a Disaster. I could have titled it Prelude to a Disaster. Again, God is predicting things that are going to happen a few years into the future that have not happened yet. So he's, and you know, we can look at this, if people say, well, how can I relate to something that was written 2,000 years ago, uh, well over 2,000 years ago? And the answer is that, you know, people don't change, right? We sometimes get deceived by our own uh, you know, egomania and, uh, you know, desires and pride and, and we don't see the problems coming. Right? God has always warned his people, whether it was the Jewish people in the Old Testament or since Christianity in the last 2000 years, he's always warned us because he knows us because he created us. He also knows our flaws. So there's, there's just a lot of things going on and we've seen, this is amazing how much God loves us. And You know, warning equals love. See, he uses uh, parables, right? He uses physical illustrations. He uses skits. We've seen that with Ezekiel. Here in this chapter, right, he's using a dirge. He's using Hebrew poetry. Something that we may not be familiar with, but the people would have been. So God is using everything at his disposal to warn the people of the coming disaster. Some listen, the remnant. Others don't, unfortunately. Um, we've learned about siege warfare when we go through this study. We've learned about, um, you know, just the superstitions of the uh, pagan armies that came and invaded, what they did when they invaded, why they did it based on their superstitions, right? Uh, in this church, we take what I would call an epistemological approach, epistemiology, which basically we separate what we feel, what we think, our opinions from what is true. What does the scripture say? How does history and archaeology support the Bible in every way? So I know I threw a lot out of you. It's a lot to digest. If you weren't here last Sunday, definitely when you go home, check out the message. Today we're going to look at this in five parts. So jumping in in Ezekiel chapter 7. And we're going to run through the first chapter, and then I'm going to break it apart. So this is this Hebrew poetry, which 
you know, they kind of, it doesn't really come out in the English and our culture as iambic pentameter and our poetry and literature might not come out to them, but I'm going to do a lot of explaining. So uh, it says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, and you, son of man, says the Lord God, to the land of Israel, right? He's a prophet. He's a, a mediator uh, before Christ. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will repay you for all of your abominations. And we talked about the abominations, how brutal they were, how the poor were affected disproportionately, the children, etc. So God has to do this, right? He can't allow this injustice to continue going. Um, as he won't allow the injustice in our world to continue going. That's another story. He says, my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways and your abominations shall be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It is dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come, a day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. Proportionality, judgment that's proportional. And I will repay you for all your abominations. You see the repetition here, right? I mean, if if it's Hebrew poetry and you're familiar and you're reading it in Hebrew, you understand why there's repetition. We're going to explain all this. He says, my I will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day, behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into the rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, none of their multitude, none of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come, the day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. We're going to get into some of this, the economic situation at the time. For wrath is on their whole multitude, for the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. The year of Jubilee is talking about. For the visions concern the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one shall strengthen himself who lives in iniquity or sin. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is on all their multitude. The sword is outside and the pestilence and famine within siege warfare. We talked about that. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword. Whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble. Every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, boldness on their heads. They will throw their silver into the streets. Their gold will be like refuse. Hmm, that's interesting. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. In the day of the wrath of the Lord, they will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. As for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made it the images of their abominations and their detestable, detestable things. This is speaking about what was going on in the temple. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. I will give it as plunder, right, into the hands of the strangers, the Babylonians, and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, holy of holies, inside of the temple. For robbers shall enter it and defile it. Make a chain. 
For the land is filled with crimes of blood and the city is full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, rumor upon rumor, and they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the Lord will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way and according to what they deserve. I will judge them, then they shall know that I am the Lord. That was a mouthful. (laughs) So the first out of three is really a detailed historical context of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. So verse two, the four corners of the land. What he's basically saying is this some you know how people are like if if. I don't know, they, they do something wrong or they're involved with something illegal and they're like, oh, I'm going to escape, you know, the plans, you know, God doesn't see. Um, God is basically saying, I'm not going to miss anything. You know, if there needs to be justice, there's going to be justice. So all that whole area will be involved. He says, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, he says this multiple times in these chapters because the people are following a competing message. You wonder why there's so much urgency. There's like, and, and people mistakenly um, judge God's character by reading a pack. This is why a lot of churches don't teach this stuff. Because you're certainly not going to pack the church and pack the coffers when you teach the tough things of the scripture. But here, we're more concerned that you know everything than just your favorite parts of the Bible. So there was a competing message like there is today. The false teachers were teaching, oh, it's going to be fine. You know, uh, Egypt is going to help us defeat Babylon. You're going to go back to Jerusalem. You won't even remember this. And that wasn't true. But you know what? Today you can turn on the TV and and some of them are good, but a lot of them aren't. And you can watch one of these TV preachers that always want to tell you a happy story. And then when you go through tragedy, that doesn't sustain you because that's actually not reality. And then you think there's something wrong with you because this guy on TV said I should always be healthy and wealthy and happy and content. And that's not reality. We live in a sinful world. Even Jesus told us that we would have tribulation in this world. But he's overcome the world, and we're going to realize that at a future time. So if the leaders of the nation would have listened, this tragedy would have been avoided. But the good news is a lot of people did listen. The remnant, the small portion, they listened to what God said, and they were spared. We're going to cover that next Sunday. Verses 10, 11, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has risen up into the rod of wickedness. These are agricultural metaphors. In other words, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow, right? If you plant a, you know, a certain type of flower, a seed, that's the flower you're going to get. You plant a, a seed of a weed plant, you're going to get a weed. Uh, and don't complain because you planted it, right? So there's an agricultural metaphor, but there's also a metaphor with Aaron for, the, for my Bible students where his, his rod actually from a dead staff already cut off from a tree, it starts to supernaturally bud, showing that God has put his mantle on the Aaronic priesthood. So that's a a whole other discussion. Uh, Verse 12 through 13, the buyer and the seller, they're confused, 
right? We look at economics today, supply, demand, inflation, superinflation. Like these are all terms based on oh, too much printing of money in the United States. We're starting to see the effects of inflation. Um, so these are rules and laws of economics. And there were rules and laws of economics in Jerusalem. However, when the Babylonians came, they're like, we don't care about your laws of economics. We're, we're, we're the new game in town. We're going to take your money. We're going to take your gold. You're going to be, you know, treated not well by the Babylonians. Uh, but more importantly than this is the one who, you know, in this is God set up a system where there wouldn't be a caste system. He didn't want within his own people. And, you know, we would do well to heed these laws. He didn't want. Uh, some being super powerful and just money begets money. More power, more power, and the people at the bottom can never get ahead. So he developed this uh, system called the Year of Jubilee. And after 50 years, so if my great-great-great-great-grandfather fell on hard times and he had to sell his farm and the DeProsimo line, you know, we just were always servants. We were always working on someone else's fields. When the 50th year of Jubilee hit, if I was the guy who it should have been my property, it, it by, by law would be given back to me. And then I can start all over again with my kids. God devised all these methods, right? You, you re, can read this quickly and go, oh, scratch your head, Ezekiel, oh, this is rough to, to decipher. It's really not when you start taking it apart. So the one who gave up the land, hey, the 50th year is coming Sadly enough, his family's not getting it back because the Babylonians came in and interrupted all. They don't care about the people they conquered. They don't care about your rules. So you start to understand this whole economic system, uh, and it makes perfect sense when you start to study it. So the year of Jubilee would be interrupted. And he says, verse 13, B, no one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity or sin. Now, you have to remember, too, that, again, it's just... If you do a study of the times in Jerusalem, 6th century B.C., what was going on, 7th century B.C., what you find was that the wealthy were oppressing the poor. Well, shocker, right? It still goes on today. When people get power, it's like Jeff Bezos, I mentioned, he's worth like $200 billion, Amazon. Through the lockdowns, he got richer. Like, when is it ever enough money for this guy? And then he fights with the workers who try to unionize or get a... And I'm, it's really not political. It's, it's factual. You know, it's, dude, you got $200 billion. You can't make conditions a little bit better for your employees. But you, you just almost get like a deity complex when you become that powerful. And this was happening among God's people. Maybe not $200 billion extent, but God was annoyed. He was ticked off about this because it wasn't supposed to be like this. So basically what happened was those who were very powerful, they were one of the first people, right, poetic justice, that when the Babylonians came in, they kicked them out because they had really nice vineyards and mansions. So they were just kicked out onto the street and the Babylonians inhabited it. Or the poor people would come and glean. Hey, there's nobody. This is abandoned. Look at this. Grapes, you know, wheat. <laughs> let's, let's, let's fill up our baskets so we could feed our families. So these are all factual things that happen. You know, again, reading it quickly, you're like, ah, that's my job to give you the cultural aspect uh, and the context at the time. Verse 14 through 15, they have blown the trumpet, but no one goes to battle. 
the Israelite army, and I say Israelites uh, in, in, with respect to the southern kingdom, they were all Israelites, uh, they were totally beleaguered. You blow the trumpet, battle. Babylonians are coming. These guys are just spent. The, the army is in disarray. They're beleaguered. Nobody goes to battle. Who's fighting these people, right? Um, so you see that. And in verse 19, you find that the wealthy, some of the wealthy tried to flee, but they can only take necessities. If you're hungry and you have to get out of your house quickly because an army is invading, what are you going to take? Are you going to munch on your gold and silver? It's not going to do anything for you. Um, and if you get caught by the enemy, they're just going to take your stuff anyway. They're not going to barter with you. They're just going to take it. And unfortunately, we've seen this over the years in history. Uh, so they basically take what they can eat. They can take what's necessary because riches can't save, right? And the riches had become their stumbling block. And it says it right here, to sin. So now they're fleeing and they're just, they're just discarding their precious metals because they can only take what they need to sustain themselves. Again, fascinating stuff. Warren Wearsby said, quote, What we selfishly keep for ourselves, we eventually lose. But what we give to the Lord, we keep forever. My brother, Pastor Sam up there, always says to me, You can't outgive God. I love that expression. You can't outgive God. When you're generous, and I found this, a little secret before I was saved, I was stingy. <laughs> so, but God changed my heart. You know, I'm like, if somebody needs something, I'll help them out. Um, and I've always found that, and I'm not a wealthy person. You can't outgive God. Somehow it, it, you know, and I don't want to say it's like the lottery or some of these prosperity teachers, but you know, God will provide for you, the generous person. So there's a lot of good stuff in here. I want to read something that Jesus said about riches, right? Matthew six nineteen. He says in the Gospel of Matthew, and a lot of general principles that Jesus gave about everything, relationships, money, life, health, worry, all kinds of really good stuff. It's such a great thing to read the Gospels. Jesus said, do not lay up yourselves for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus isn't saying don't save. He's not saying don't work and provide for your family. But it's just the general attitude that we have towards wealth. You know what I'm saying? When, when I was a police officer, I can't tell you how many houses I went in when somebody passed. And, I'm, you know, you have to secure the scene before the coroner and, you know, the medical people can determine it was actually natural causes. And... So much stuff, so much expense, and you look around and the person's gone. They couldn't take any of it with them. It's pretty impressive. I mean, it's, it's really amazing when you think about what Jesus said. How much do we really need, right? If we have a billion, we want 10 billion. You know, we want, I keep picking on this billionaire, but he's up to well over 200 billion. Like, what, what is it? Is it so that you can say I'm more wealthy than my other buddies at the golf club? Like, what's the point? What is the point? And you can make yourself crazy with this accumulation. And Jesus is saying, you know what? It's more important that you build up treasures towards the Lord. 
as Warren Wiersbe says, can never be taken from you. Because what you build up for yourself here towards the Lord, you end up taking into eternity. And again, let me dissociate myself from these greedy preachers who are saying, and guess what? We're going to take a collection now after I just said that. That's not the point. The point is to, be, to have an attitude of generosity. Right? Not if you give us $1,000, you're going to be cured of cancer. That's just, that's just weirdness in the Christian culture. So let's stick with the Bible here, right? Um, <clears throat> verse 22. You know, God has to, unfortunately at this point, look away while the Babylonians come in and defile the temple. Which was a place, for those of you who are new to the scripture, where God said, my physical presence would rest there in the Holy of Holies in this special chamber. And God, we'll see in the next chapter, he has to leave there. The, the wickedness among his people is so brutal. He's got to look away. He's got to walk away. And the Babylonians came in and busted everything down, stripped the gold off the walls, took the precious uh, metals and gems, and they took a lot of loot back to Babylon. But the people thought to themselves, we're going to be okay because we have the temple. That's another dangerous thing. Now, religious vestiges. And in religion, you can become liturgical to the point of idolatrous. So let me just say that um, before I was a Christian, I believed in God. And trust me, I always have to kind of throw a caveat out here. I'm fine with people wearing jewelry. You know, I had a crucifix. And it hung from my, my a gold chain, and I never took it off. But I didn't know the Lord. So to me, that crucifix, and I, I remember how I thought it was going to save me. Now, it almost became an amulet or a charm, but that's me. If you have a crucifix, it's probably beautiful. I'm, not, I'm talking about me and my attitude towards the things of God. I looked at objects because I didn't know God. But when I became a Christian, when a born-again Christian, and really understood who God was... The vestiges weren't important. The stuff, the representations, the people. I was able to have a relationship with the living God. But going back to this, um, this area in Jerusalem, God's people strayed so far from God that they were just looking at, oh, the Babylonians will never get in. We have the temple and God's presence is in there. They were so wicked in what they did. They didn't realize that God had, he moved out, so to speak. You know, he didn't like the neighborhood. It was all idolatrous, right? So he, he left, right? So they were, they were still looking at that. Um, and I, I just be careful of that today. You know, where, where are you with the Lord? Are you looking at vestiges, religious objects, or you truly, when you're in your alone time, have conversations with God? He prefers that over anything else. Verse 23, Ezekiel, again, he did a lot of skits. He said, make a chain. Now, this hadn't happened yet. It's almost like how much did Ezekiel have to try to get their attention? He was foretelling the chains that the Babylonians, they would bring them in on carts. And they would lead the people chained to each other out of there and expatriate them, unfortunately, to be slaves and to work in the Babylonian empire, right? So he's warning them. Make a chain, foretelling the captivity. Let me read uh, verse 25 again. He says, destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. You know, they reaped what they sowed, right? They sowed 
discourse, discord. You know, it's an amazing thing how you can treat other people badly, but then when it's your turn, you want someone to show you mercy. God says that he will show mercy to the merciful. How do we live our lives when somebody wrongs us for petty stuff? Is it really that big of a deal? Um, but, you know, you, you do reap what you sow. Verse 26b, they were, now they were, when, when this started, this disaster started to happen, they were looking to the prophets, the elders, the priests, but God said that they wouldn't have an answer for them. Because God, because, first of all, a lot of the clergy had become corrupt themselves. So God wasn't speaking through them anymore. So now you get to a point where you talk about hitting rock bottom. Wow, I, even the clergy can't give me an answer, right? It was a very sad time. Uh, verse 27, he says, well, they will know that I am the Lord. There was plenty of, <laughs> I guess, the, uh, the big tech at the, at, at, of the day. There was plenty of propaganda going around. Oh, don't worry about the Babylonians. The Egyptians will save us. Um, you know, the politicians had the loudest voices. The clergy had the loudest voices, and they were all wrong. You know, it's my warning today to the Christian culture. Sometimes I see the culture of Christianity just move quickly towards some uh, secular humanist, uh, you know, manifesto from a sociology department in a, in a university somewhere. What are these people saying on TV? The ones with the loudest voices is what they're saying incongruous with what the scripture says, you know? God, and I said this last Sunday, God often, when you look through the scripture, he doesn't think, do things through the large and the powerful. His Holy Spirit usually comes through the remnant, through the minority of thought, right? Uh, and and I, don't, I see the same thing today, right? Do we content with being part of the remnant? It's, you know what, socially, it's like peer pressure. It feels better if everyone else is doing it than we just kind of go along with it. Because if you don't, you might get blowback. Right? You might get canceled, <laughs> cancel culture. Um, but are we being true to what God says? Important stuff here. Ver, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month. Remember, these chapter delineations came later. This is all one thought. So let me, let me bring these two together for you. On the fifth day of the month, as I, Ezekiel, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Because remember, Ezekiel's ministry is primarily in Babylon. He's referencing Jerusalem. And he says things to the people in Jerusalem that there's no way they would have known unless he had seen it firsthand. So here is God is showing him something. So we talked about the idolatry of the people. Now we're going to look at the idolatry that the people put in God's home. And we'll see why God departed. He says, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. But it's not going to last, as we'll see next Sunday. So 
two out of three is the vision of the glory of God. This is a refreshing aside to, unfortunately, when we have to read about judgment. And I believe we see so many visions of, of God that in Ezekiel's book, because it's a, it's a sad time. But, you know, God always, even through the most difficult times in our life, he's still there. He still wants to give us a glimmer of hope. So Ezekiel, I studied Isaiah, Revelation. I studied almost all, all the books of the Bible I taught. And this one, it, it just clicked to me that I keep reading. I haven't read Ezekiel in a long time. That you keep seeing God in this book. But I believe it's God's way to comfort to the people back then and also to comfort us, right? So I'm going to come back to this because I want to end on a high note. Let me just leave you with this one. The elders of Judah were sitting before him. You had elders in Jerusalem who weren't listening. Isn't that amazing how you can go, you can go on YouTube and listen to different preachers and they can say things diametrically opposed to each other. You can come to this church and we can go through the Bible and you can click on, you know, people do YouTube surfing with all these different ministries and, and hear something vastly different. And it actually can entertain you and make you feel good. And you say, you know what, in my emotions, I like that teaching better, but it could be wrong. So here you have a situation where there's elders in Jerusalem who says, we're the elders, we're the clergy, but you also had elders in Babylon that they got it. Because people say, well, why would they all be sitting before Ezekiel? I thought they didn't like him. We're talking about two groups of people. Clergy, clergy. One in Jerusalem, one group, one in, in Babylon. In Babylon, the one sitting in front of Ezekiel's house listening to him, they get it. They're like, we're in, we're in, we're in a POW camp. We get it. You people aren't listening. Isn't that amazing? So, folks, as, as believers, when we listen and we surf and we listen to different things, we have to have a spiritual discernment. And especially it has, to, it has to touch the word of God for us to find out what the truth is. Amen? Right? This, in this church, you got to get your B-complex, get your carbohydrates in the morning, get whatever you got to take. And you, you got to like, it's, it's brain power because God says in his word, he says to his creation, reason with me. Did God give us a, a big brain with all these billions of neurons for no reason? He doesn't want us to check our minds at the door. He wants us to reason. And we're in a culture where reasoning and critical thinking is going out the window. We've got to be the ones, hopefully, if somebody talks to you and asks you a question with the Holy Spirit and with your knowledge of the things that you know, even if it's limited, that we can help people come, come to this side. Salvation, Jesus Christ, right? Through the blood of Christ. Very important stuff. So, 5 through 18, and this is where we're going to end these last few verses. He said to me, so... God says to Ezekiel, son of man, lift your eyes. So he's being taken, whether it's a vision or literal, and you know, Bible scholars can argue about this. I don't think it matters. All I know is before this experience, Ezekiel had no idea what was going on in the temple. After it, he knew. So you can call it a vision. You could say that he lifted him up and brought him over there to check it out and took him back to Babylon, whatever. I don't care. He said to me, son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. So he's in Jerusalem now. Now, so I lifted my eyes towards the north and there north of the altar gate was this image of jealousy in the entrance. 
Further, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, God's house, to make me go far away from my sanctuary, which was not God's ideal. He didn't want to do that. He always wanted to be close to his people. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. You get the impression that these clergy were just hiding these detestable and dirty things. But of course, God sees everything. And now he reveals it to Ezekiel who exposes them. So I dug into the wall and there was a door. And he said to me, there was a lot of little chambers in, in this structure, this temple. So he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all of the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So they were doing these religious things, and swinging censers, and... Um, you know, they're doing their own religious thing. And God's like, what are you doing? Right? And he's exposing it. Verse 12, he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz who is like a Sumerian god. We'll get back to that. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. And they were worshiping the sun, S-U-N, towards the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. And we'll talk about that. Therefore, I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So three out of three is the blasphemous images in the temple. Right? So the first thing we see is the image of jealousy. And this reminds me of this future uh, charismatic globalist, which is called the Antichrist in the scripture, who, when the third temple is rebuilt, and we covered this extensively, will make a false treaty with Israel. And you start to see there's some strange things happening in the Middle East right now, if you follow overseas news. And he will set himself up in this holy place to say that he is God and demand worship because he's inspired by satanic activity. And, you know, let me just say as an aside, again, some people, like I said, I don't need to be God's spokesman. I don't need to be his public relations person. He doesn't need me. But, you know, when I read about even some sex trafficking um, and in certain areas, clergy are caught up with the stings, that's disgusting. When I read about, and it's multiple denominations, clergy abuse, things that happen in the actual church with children, that's disgusting. That's so disgusting. I, I, it viscerally makes me sick. 
how do you not, how do you do that in a church? How do you do that at all? But do it in a church and think that God's, you're, God's not going to deal. You have to be demonic to do that. That's not a person who made a mistake. That is just sick. So again, people here, they, they want justice, justice. And then when we read about justice, like, oh, God is harsh. Come on. We read that it's proportional, right? And even if somebody, I do say it again, clergy abuse, a person dies and like, they never, they never caught the guy. Uh, don't worry, God caught him. He's got his own prosecutorial, prosecutorial team. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but this is bad things that are happening under the guise of, of clergy or godly men and women. So the image of jealousy is, is at the entrance of the temple. It's an outrageous thing. It's some type of statue or idol. You're going into God's house, but you, you kind of genuflect to, to the, the image or the statue. And then you go into the house of God. Um, and verse 6, he says, they're making me go far away from my sanctuary. You know, when we're far from God, he didn't move. His desire is always to be close to us. You know, and we know that. When we backslide and we do dumb things and we just, I mean, not to this level, but um, we moved. He didn't move. God's desire is always to be close to his people. But he won't allow us to be successful in practicing evil. And on a historical note, um, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, they were great kings. Um, They would take over, right? Like our elections, they would be inauguration day, they would take over and they would... They were such good men. They, they went into the temple and they said, what is this garbage? And they would get carts and they would take these disgusting things out of God's house and send them out, burn them, break them up. And then the next king who would be bad would build new ones and put them back in. And there was this kind of back and forth going on, just to give you a historical note. Um, but here, things are really, really bad. Verses 7 through 12, the, I call it the creepy carvings on the wall. <laughs> and the 70 elders of the, of the men of Israel were, were here. Now, again, on a historical note, they were trying to curry favor with the Egyptians. Remember, and here's the problem when, when churches and ministries get political, right? When they get political, they fail. And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, they were trying to curry favor with the Egyptians to save them from the Babylonians, so they would take, the Egyptians would worship, uh, you know, insect gods and animal gods and, you know, hybrid, half animal, half uh, human. So they were like, well, we want to make the Egyptians happy so they can bail us out instead of turning the gods. So they would put some of these weird images and carvings in God's house. And he says to Ezekiel, just dig, dig that hole there, you know, keep going and you know, go into that, that little cubby and you'll see these things. Right? How many people knew this stuff was in here? This is just amazing. And, and we can even apply this to ministry today. What, what, what makes a church a church? You know, how much of it has left the relationship with God to have uh, objects to be like the mediators? And they're not supposed to be. So dig into the wall. You know, I, I know a lot of people that tell me they hide valuables in the secret chambers in their homes. Okay which is fine, but these people were hiding some of the most disgusting, detestable things from the rest of the Israelites because a lot of the Israelites were good. So they were even embarrassed for it to be seen in public. So the worst of the worst was hidden in these chambers that they would go in secretly and they would worship them, but the people outside didn't know, but God exposes it to Ezekiel. 
It's fascinating stuff. Um, Verse 12, the, the people who were committing this said, the Lord doesn't see us. He has forsaken the land. So first statement is not true. The Lord sees everything and he exposes it. So God sees everything. He has forsaken the land, partly true, partly false. Don't I sound like a fact checker? (laughs) Put up a meme, partly true, partly false. Um, He only forsook and had to walk away because what they turned it into. It was demonic. So God can't coexist with that type of stuff. Um, There's a lot to this, right? Verse 13 through 14, the women weeping for Tammuz. There was something for everybody in this culture. There was something for the clergy. There was something for the politicians. There was something for the women, right? And they were all bad. But they had, just like today, we separate people in the demographics. I'll give you something. I'll give you something. I'll give you something. And they were, they were fractured. They were divided. Um, so the weeping for Tammuz, again, this is a, a, a god, a false god, a fertility god. And there's a resurrection story to it. So they, they weep at a certain point and supposedly he gets resurrected. And um, there was a lot of sexual activity associated with this. A lot of the pagans had houses of prostitution. So sexual uh, abuse was often part of pagan ceremonies. And this was one of them. And again, you can look this up in your history books. It'll certainly back that up. Uh, verses 15 through 18, and of course, the priests and sun worship, right? Uh, portion the altar. Well, they were probably the priests. Uh, so what happens is they, what they do is they, they go to the temple, right? And they're supposed to be next to God. They're supposed to be God's representatives. So they, they look to the east, right? The, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So they have their back towards really where God was supposed to dwell. And they're worshiping the sun, the S-U-N, as it rises up. That's messed up. So they're worshiping what God created in the sky instead of worshiping the creator. Romans 1 tells that all the time. You see today people do it. People want to worship something that's tangible. So they worship the creation instead of the creator. You know, my wife and I are major, uh, you know, uh, nature lovers. We don't use pesticides. I raise bees. She has flowers and we love God's creation, but we don't worship the creation. Some people today worship the creation as God. And you think about pantheism and panentheism, uh, but you have to worship the one who created it all. Otherwise, we're, we're, that's just messed up. You know what I'm saying? It's like, commending the scalpel instead of the surgeon. It doesn't make any sense. So this is what's going on. They set a horrible example to uh, the people. And when you look in Revelation, this last dictator, this last fascist, he does a lot of this weird stuff too because he hates God. He wants to be worshipped as God. And sometimes it can be very subtle. I'll leave you with this. Verse 17, they put... (laughs) They put the branch to the nose. Uh, you know, what is that? You know, they, indeed, they put the branch to their nose and God is upset with that. I'm not going to flesh out every little colloquialism and practice of, you know, ancient peoples, but they had things we don't understand. A branch to the nose. What is that? But they don't, they don't understand our gestures, right? So let's just say that it was very disrespectful to God. 
and I've done some reading, but nobody's really nailed it down. I'll give you an example, right? So I was, I'm studying Ezekiel. I'm driving to church. You know where this is going. <laughs> and some guy completely cuts everybody off, almost causes an accident. And I kind of pull up next to him. I'm thinking, is he texting? Is he, is he drunk? You know, what's the deal? And, and I just, I didn't say anything. I didn't gesture him. I just was like, like, what's your, what's up with you? You almost killed somebody without words. And he, he looks at me and he gave me, well, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> he, everybody's awake. He gave me the New Jersey universal, your number one sign. <laughs> so I looked at him and, and he gave me the sign and I thought, I'm number one. If you're listening, I forgive you. Uh, <laughs> And, and I started laughing. What am I going to do? You know, have a fist fight on the side of the road. But I laughed because I thought of this, right? So the Israelites wouldn't understand the New Jersey Universal, your number one sign, but all of you do. We don't understand branch to the nose. Suffice to say, it's not something good. Okay, let's move on. I spent way too much time on that. <laughs> you know, I've learned in life to just let things go. I just laugh and it's like, whatever. Hopefully next time you do that, there's a police officer behind you. So, so the message is titled, The History of a Disaster. I just want to, because we see things in our world that are disturbing. If you are spiritually sensitive, you know what the Bible says, you know about end time things, you know where the world is going... Wait till we get into Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. These three chapters will blow your doors off. Literally written 2,600 years ago. Explain everything that's happened probably in the last 70 years. So you're just going to have to wait for that. But uh, very, very exciting. You know what it tells me? That God is on the throne. There's no way he would know Ezekiel 38, 39. And, and I'll get to that. Let me just read to you Ezekiel 8, 1 through 4 again. So it says, this is the note I want to end on. I'll just look at verse 2. Then I looked and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire. Now, in Hebrew, the word for man is ish and the word for fire is esh. Esh and ish, sometimes they're used interchangeably. So, and some translations have, have ish instead of esh. The point I'm trying to make is, is that God reveals himself to, often to his prophets, right? Jesus came fully God, but he came in the form of a man. And his disciples and everybody around could totally get that. The crucifixion freaked them out, but then he comes back. He's resurrected. So God appears to you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John. The Apostle Paul, he speaks about 2 Corinthians 12. He was taken up to the third heaven. Very similar to Ezekiel's experience. So Ezekiel looks, and he's got a very, I would say, if I could use this word, depressing ministry. It's not a fun ministry. It's not the ministry to Barbados. So it's, he sees this likeness, appearance of fire from the appearance of his personal pronoun is used, right? His waist and downward fire and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. Ezekiel 1, we covered this in detail. And again, he stretches out 
the form of a hand. Ezekiel's like, it looks like a hand coming towards me, but he knows it's the good guys, right? And he takes me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth, similar to the Apostle Paul, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. And he sees all these things that he's shown. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that what Ezekiel knew, and what we have to know, folks, is that God is on the throne. He is. And God is patient with our world. Our world is a very awful place. You know, you can look at the people leading Europe and different countries, look at the United States. Where are the godly people? Where are the people submitted to Jesus Christ? We're starting to lose them. So what do we have? People that'll try anything but God. Anything but God. And we cry out for the Lord. But eventually the Lord is going to return like he did here. And it's this, we have to trust God. Next Sunday is going to be amazing because you actually see Ezekiel start to break down and cry because of the frustration. The people aren't listening and then judgment has to come. And I say this, if somebody enjoys preaching about hell and judgment, they probably shouldn't be in ministry. These are natural things that have to take place in order for good and restoration and all these things to happen. But we don't enjoy seeing it. We don't enjoy seeing somebody who hit rock bottom and should have turned to God. But they're still trying to go lower and lower and lower. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I lost my little brother. Uh, he's 10 years younger than me. I'm not going to go into the details, but I changed his diaper. He's gone. He's gone. I tried to reach him. Folks, this stuff is not enjoyable, but, it, but it, it does end on a high note. I do believe that God gives human beings every single chance to come to him. I've been in hospitals where people have been in comas. And their loved ones have held their hand, talked to them. And there's some, but they can't consciously wake up. And they're, they're sharing scripture with them. People who have been out, but tear, a tear came to their eye. God is a merciful God. He loves us so much. And that loved one that you know that hit rock bottom, he loves them more than you do. So in order to get to this place, you almost have to give yourself over to the dark side. And some people do. Folks, be the remnant. Be the small minority of people that are really serious about praying for not just your loved ones, the kids at the gym, I say kids at my age, 20-somethings, you know, you know, the kids pumping gas, the kids at the checkout, you know, and they have that look in their eyes like they're just doing this job and there's, there's not a lot of joy there. And, and, you know, my wife and I talk about this. We will go to a store and we watch uh, the checkout girl or guy and one after another after another, they just kind of throw the money at them. They're on their phone. Like they don't even, they don't talk to them like they're a human. You know, and, and my wife and I just spend a lot of time talking to strangers. Some people think we're weird, but, you know, just to kind of reach out to people and say, there is a God. He does love you. There is more than this mundane existence of being on the wheel in the rat race. So let's look at this in a positive way. Let's look at this in a way that we, we see the ebbs and flows of human nature, what God has to do, but what he has to do to bring restoration and joy in all eternity and peace. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet 
for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.